found a podcast where you'll hear the truth and we will praise jesus name we stand for the bible and won't back down from it although it don't bring much fame some folks will like it some will try to deny it but god's word will always stand true Tried in the fire, still Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Pod King Bible Study. I'm your co-host, Donald King. And I'm Donnie King, the host of this podcast, and we welcome you to this edition. This is Monday, August the 22nd, episode number 78. The judge is at the door. James chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. On this podcast, we study the Bible according to how it was written in the original languages, Greek and Hebrew, how it was translated into English in the King James Version. In our last study, we answered a question that was sent in by a faithful listener out of Oklahoma. The question was posed. I've noticed several places within Scripture where it says people rose early to do certain things, such as when Abraham rose early to sacrifice Isaac in Genesis 22. So what is the significance of this? We took some time to go over this intriguing practice while we unpacked several other related things. We looked into this question and much, much more. We believe that you will enjoy this study. In today's episode, James continues his diatribe about the rich men of his day. He accuses them of condemning and killing just men, and then he warns them of the coming day of the Lord. We know that the day of the Lord is a day of judgment, which James warns is drawing nigh. He tells us not to grudge against one another because the judge stands before the door. He then speaks of endurance, and he reminds us of Job. We cover several things in this episode that we believe you will find very helpful. Now for the teaching of God's word and the lesson for today, I'll turn it to the host of this podcast, our pastor, Brother Donnie King. Thank you for tuning in today. We're going to look at the judge is at the door. This is what James is trying to tell us in this passage that we're going to go through today. And we're looking forward to what God may speak to us through his word. Are you ready? Yes. Amen. All right, James 5 and 6 says, Ye have condemned and killed the just, and he doeth not resist you. James lays upon his audience a very grave accusation here. He says that they had condemned and killed the just. This is another one of those odd or vague verses found within this book. There isn't really much to go on to help us understand this, but I believe that we can glean a little from the word meanings. The Greek word kata dikatzo interprets as condemned to pronounce guilty and to sentence. It's used five times in the New Testament and every other time, but this one, it's used by Jesus. It really brings James 2 and 6 back to my mind where he was once again speaking of the rich, and there he says that they were the ones who were oppressing them. Let me read you that. But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? He is speaking of someone given sentence in a legal context. It appears that the rich people were taking the poor people to court and having them sentenced to death. The obvious thing here is that they were doing this in order to retain their riches. James says they killed phanuio in the Greek, which means they intentionally premeditated their murder. Now, this takes my mind back to James 4 and 2, where he accused them of killing from their desire to have, which simply put stemmed from their lust. Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight in war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. 
When it says that they have killed the just, there's a lot of argument here as to who this is speaking of. Many people believe this is an allusion back to Acts 3 and 14 and that James is rebuking the Jews for purposely murdering Jesus. When you read this in context, this literally makes no sense at all to me. I'll read you Acts 3 and 14, then I'll come back to James here. But you denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you. Now, when you read James 5 and 6 in context, you have condemned and killed the just, and he doeth not resist you. Do you remember what we read in the previous verses? He was speaking to those rich people who had oppressed the ones who labored for them, and they had defrauded them, holding back their wages. I believe that he is still speaking to these rich people who had not paid these laborers, and in effect, they were starving them to death. James declares this is the same thing as premeditated murder. It was definitely done intentionally, and it's a terrible wrong. The last little phrase in this verse says, and he doeth not resist you. Those who say this is speaking of the Jews killing Christ say that this means that he did not resist those who tried to kill him. This was done in order to allow him to die as a willing sacrifice. I have no problem with the fact that Jesus died as a willing sacrifice. I believe that too. I don't even doubt the fact that he didn't resist him. I believe that 100%. But I do have a problem with this being the actual interpretation of this portion of Scripture, though. The problem here is that there's no evidence whatsoever that James has been talking about Jesus or is talking about Jesus now. Another thing is that in this phrase, he doeth not resist you, it's used in the present tense. It is being closer to he does not resist you, meaning that it's happening right now. Jesus is not still allowing them to crucify him every day. This speaks of an action that is not fully completed as of yet because it's still ongoing. This means that God has not brought judgment upon them as of yet, which implies impending judgment for their horrific deeds. What James is doing is he's reminding them that they still had to get past the judgment and he hadn't resisted them yet. What is ironic here is that these people were guilty of using legal means to retain their riches. And then James reminds them of the final legal justice that will be administered and it's going to be administered by the judge of all the earth. Just the thought of that ought to have struck fear into every one of their hearts who heard this. Going to James 5 and 7, he says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it, until he receive the early and latter rain. Once again, we have James telling us that we need patience, or that we need to be patient. This is not your normal word for patience here, though, for it implies having patience for a long time or for an extended time. It is the Greek word makrotimio. Makrotimio means to bear long, as Luke 18 and 7 has it. It means to suffer long, as 1 Corinthians 13 and 4 has it. And it means long-suffering, as 2 Peter 3 and 9 has it. It speaks of someone who can deal with delay very well. This also reminds me of Luke chapter 8, verse 15, which just so happens to deal with someone possessing long patience for fruit as well. Let me read you this. But that on the good ground are they, when in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. James addresses his audience as brethren again, and then he throws us a little off kilter. He seems to throw a reference in about the coming of the Lord while he's talking about farming. 
<laughs> this shows how disjointedly we read our Bibles because the reference to farming is only an analogy for the coming of the Lord that James is using here. He encourages us to be patient in our waiting for the Lord's parousia, as the Greek has it. Now, anyone who knows anything about the end time, the word parousia speaks of the coming of the Lord, his advent, his presence, his arrival. In his analogy, James says we should all be willing to wait on the Lord. He says we should be willing to wait however long a farmer has to wait for the rains to come and fall on his precious crops. The farmer knows that this must happen in order to ensure that he gets a good harvest. To me, this verse is reminiscent of 1 Thessalonians 2 and 19, which speaks of us being present with the Lord and his second coming. Let me read you that. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? We are to await the Lord's coming as a husbandman, or as the Greek word georgios interprets, a farmer, a sharecropper, or a gardener. We're to wait the Lord's coming just like one of these gardeners, sharecroppers, or farmers would wait for the fruit of his ground to come forth after the rains have come. He waits, as the Greek ekdekome is translated, he expects, Hebrews 10 and 13. He tarries, 1 Corinthians 11 and 33. He remains steadfast throughout his delay. He's waiting for this fruit to ripen, to mature. What is this farmer really waiting for? He's eagerly awaiting the precious fruit of the ground. Precious here is the Greek word timios, which means thing of great price or thing of great value. We understand that it's not something that he doesn't care about. It is definitely something he is very much concerned about. And just by the mention of fruit here, we understand James is speaking of the harvested goods. By knowing a person's existence is dependent upon this harvest, it brings things into view a little better for us. If there's no harvest, there will be no food for the farmer who has worked so hard. If there is no harvest, there will be no income for the farmer who has labored so much. So this farmer has shown long patience, which is the same word James used earlier in this verse. This carries the idea of someone who can keep calm while enduring hard circumstances. Uh, does this describe you? Does that really describe me? What is the farmer waiting on? He's awaiting the former and the latter rains. When translated literally, this is speaking of the first rains of autumn and the late rains of spring. I want to go to Deuteronomy 11 and 14 and Job 29 and 23 and show you a little bit of proof on what I'm saying here. That I will give you the rain of your land in his due season, the first rain and the latter rain, that thou mayest gather in thy corn and thy wine and thine oil. Job 29 and 23, and they waited for me as for the rain, and they opened their mouth wide as for the latter rain. We see the main thought pattern that James is speaking about has been expressed earlier in scriptures as well, and he takes that same thought from verses 6 and 7 and goes into verse 8 with it. Be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. For the third time in the past two verses, James uses the same word once again, makrotimio. Makrotimio speaks of possessing long patience. Remember, it's the ability to wait for a long time. This time, he's telling us to be patient. Next, he tells us how to obtain this patience and what it will do for us. He said, it'll establish your hearts. Well, how do we establish our hearts? I think 1 Thessalonians 3 and 13 explains this pretty well. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. 
God's holiness will cleanse us of our sins, freeing our hearts so that they can be strengthened. This is the Greek word sterizo, and sterizo means to strengthen, as in Luke 22 and 32, and it means to be steadfast, as in Luke 9 and 51. Why is it so important that we are to strengthen our hearts? Well, he tells us, the coming of the Lord draws nigh. 1 Peter 4 and 7, but the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. Romans 13 and 11, and that knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. This word should be a familiar Greek word to you, for it is engitzo. Engitzo means to approach, as in Hebrews 10 and 25, and it interprets as at hand, as in Matthew 3 and 2. We need to understand these things very much. Hebrews 10 and 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. It's drawing near, Matthew 3 and 2. John the Baptist came preaching saying, repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's very near. We need our heart strengthened because the coming of the Lord is near. This is also why we need patience, because the coming of the Lord is near. We don't know at the exact time that he's going to appear. This is why we must have long patience to wait for him. We don't know how long he'll tarry before he comes. This word actually carries the sense of a determined outcome. It means to be firmly resolute in the purpose in which you possess. After appearing to change subjects from the rebuking of the greedy rich people to moving on to the coming of the Lord, James again shifts gears once again in this next verse, verse 9. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. James cautions his audience to grudge not against each other. He then gives them his reasoning, which I believe is twofold. First, he says, we're in danger of being condemned. Secondly, he says, the judge is standing before the door. When James says to grudge not or not to grudge, this is the Greek word stenazo. Stenazo means don't complain, don't grumble, don't groan, as in Romans 8 and 23 has it, grieve, as Hebrews 13 and 17 has it, or to sigh, as Mark 7 and 34 has it. It simply means to vocally indicate displeasure towards someone. I love that how that after he speaks of them not grudging one against the other, he reminds them once again that they are brethren. You did catch that, didn't you? Grudge not one against another, brethren. (laughs) It's like you're slapping them in the face, reminding them, hey, you're grudging against your own brother. This would be a good reminder for anyone who is grumbling and complaining about his brothers and sisters in the Lord. His reasoning is, is that if they're guilty of this, they're going to be condemned. This word is used in the subjunctive case, which means that it points to a happening in the future that the present time will determine. What happens right now is going to shape our future. In other words, what you do right now is either going to justify you in the future or it will have you condemned in the future. James had just accused his audience in verse 6 of condemning the just. Now here in verse 9, he's telling them that the just one or the judge is standing ready to condemn them. We should judge nothing before the Lord comes, according to 1 Corinthians 4 and 5. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, and who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts, and then shall every man have praise of God. The word for judge is adicocrites, and adicocrites describes a biased judge. Before you think this is an incorrect rendering, 
God is most definitely a biased judge. We must do things his way or else. God's not going to change his judgment because it's on a different person, and it's a, that would be partiality. That would be favoritism. He is definitely biased. He has his belief, his opinion, and could I tell you, his belief, his opinion is the only opinion and belief that's right. When he says that the judge is standing before the door, this could be understood as 1 Peter 4 and 5, as I just read a moment ago, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. But Matthew 24 and 33 says, So likewise ye, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near even at the doors. Revelation 22 and 12. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man as his work shall be. The judge is said to stand before the door. That literally means in front of the door, which is the Greek word thera. Thera means gate, as in Acts 3 and 2. It means entrance, and it can just simply mean door. Now, let's put all this together so that it makes perfect sense to everyone listening. If we vocally indicate displeasure of our brethren, we will be judged. We will not only be judged, but we will be condemned. Is it worth standing in jeopardy of the judgment just to mouth off about our brothers and sisters? As we see, once again, James is tackling the issue of the tongue here. The book of James interweaves his main topics all throughout his letter, bringing things to our remembrance over and over and over again. The main takeaway point right here is that the judge is standing before the door, in front of the door that we need to go through. We can't get through the entrance with him standing before the door. That means we must go through him. If not, this indicates that we can't get through to the place that we desire to enter. This also indicates something else. It also shows that our condemnation James speaks of is not prison, but of hell. This is how severe a penalty God places upon those who cannot control their tongues. James 5 and 10. Take, my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering affliction and of patience. The way this verse starts off in the English is a little confusing. It can be slightly reworded without changing the meaning and add a little bit of clarity here. Let me reword it for you. My brethren, take the prophets for an example in patience of those who have suffered affliction for speaking the name of the Lord. We see this thought in a couple of other places as well, such as Matthew 5 and 12 and 2 Peter 1 and 21. Let me read you those in that order. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. They spoke in the name of the Lord. It also brought suffering for those who spoke in his name. Once again, James addresses his audience by calling them brethren. Then he compels them to stop and think about the prophets and everything they endured. He also mentions the fact of how they spoke for the Lord and in the name of the Lord. He mentions that the prophets suffered affliction, and then he spoke of their patience throughout everything they suffered. I believe that there's a huge connection with the prophets suffering in the name of the Lord here. It was because of the name of the Lord that they suffered. James said that they're an example, or as the Greek word, hupodiagma, interprets a model or a pattern, just like he said in Hebrews 9 and 23. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these. So we see this word means pattern as well as it means example. While we read suffering and affliction as two separate words in our English, in the Greek, it is the one and same word, kakopatheia. Kakopatheia means to suffer wrongly. 
It means to persevere through terrible circumstances. It carries the sense of someone who has submitted themselves to affliction that has been unjustly inflicted upon them. Mm. Do we have what it takes to do what they did? God help us all. James states that the prophets went through all of these things because they had long patience that he had been describing to us. James takes this thought forward into the next verse, verse 11. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. James makes a curious statement in this verse. He says that we count them happy which endure. How can a person who has to endure affliction or troubles be counted as happy? The phrase count happy is one Greek word, and it's makarizo. Makarizo means to declare someone blessed or to consider someone blessed, as in Luke 1 and 48. For he hath regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. So who are these people who are blessed? It's those who endure. This is the Greek word hupomino, which means to remain, to abide, and endure. It is showcased in Matthew 10 and 22, which is the main sense that it carries. Let me read you that. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. It means to face things with courage. It means to remain the same throughout those things that you have to face. James then reminds his audience that they have heard of the patience of Job, So we realize there must be a connection between this endurance and patience here. Patience is the Greek word hupomoni, and it means to be steadfast no matter what comes or what goes. It is the power to withstand hardship. It is the inward fortitude to always do that which is right. Job certainly had that kind of patience. He certainly possessed that kind of steadfastness, as we see in Job 2 and 10 in many other places. But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? And all this did not Job sin with his lips. Another curious phrase that James uses here is that we have seen the end of the Lord. Now, I want to point out something here. This should not be viewed as a reference to the crucifixion of Christ. It doesn't have anything to do with the death of Christ. This is still speaking to Job and his situation. Now, before you start thinking, wait a minute, he's called Job the Lord. No, 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 no. He's talking about what the Lord did for Job. He just mentioned the hardships that Job had to go through, the patience he had to go through it. And then he talks about we've seen the end of the Lord. So just taking this in context means a whole lot. It's speaking of Job in his situation. Let's go to Job 42, verses 10 through 12. And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came there unto him all his brethren and all his sisters and all they that had been of his acquaintances before and did eat bread with him in his house. And they bemoaned him and comforted him over all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Every man also gave him a piece of money and every one an earring of gold. So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning, for he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, and a thousand yoke of oxen and a thousand she asses. James is talking about the end that the Lord brought to the hardships that Job had to endure. He's also telling us that if God will bring Job's hardships to an end, if you have that same kind of patience, you will see the end of the Lord as well. We've all seen the end of the Lord every time he brings our trials to an end. I love the way that James uses the word seen here in this verse. Seen is the Greek word oida, which also means knowledge. It means to know something. 
He's telling us we know these things because of what we have seen and what we have witnessed. That means that we understand things by sight. We know the way that God brings things to an end because we've seen it with our own eyes. The part where James states that the Lord is very pitiful is mangled often by well-meaning people, and it's mainly from a lack of understanding. They look and say, well, the Lord's pitiful. Well, when James says that the Lord is very pitiful, some people want to cross-reference this to the crucifixion again, and this is very misguided. Yes, it was deserving of pity what he had to go through, and that's what our English word pitiful means, one who is deserving of pity. The original English version of this word and the Greek meaning means to be full of pity towards others. That's pitiful, full of pity. So where we might look at someone in bad shape and say, oh, they're in pitiful shape. The Lord is seen as pitiful because he is full of pity towards those who are enduring hardship. Pitiful is a Greek word, polysplanchos. Polysplanchos means to be sympathetic. It means to have compassion towards others. Who would deny that the Lord is sympathetic to those who are in need? Who would deny that God has compassion on those who are going through things? A good example of this is found in Numbers 14 and 18. The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. James is about to take this letter towards its conclusion, so he turns his focus elsewhere in the next verse, and that's why we're going to stop this study for today, and we'll jump in at verse 12 next week, if the Lord be willing. Okay, Brother Donnie, that was some great teaching again. I certainly enjoy the Word of God. Got a question sent in here today by a faithful listener. You ready for it? I believe I am. Let's go. In Matthew chapter 7, Verses 21 through 23, Jesus tells some people to depart from him because they work iniquity. What does it mean to work iniquity? (laughs) Good question. And let's go to that passage before I say anything and let's read it and we'll go from there. Matthew 7, 21, 22, and 23. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Okay, so we've got religious people. We've got them coming to Jesus, telling them what they've done, what they've accomplished, how great, how mighty, how powerful they are. And then he says they call him Lord. They call him Lord, Lord twice. And they prophesied, they've cast out devils, they've done many wonderful works, which also means mighty miracles. And Jesus says, I'm going to profess to them, I never knew you. And then he says, depart from me. That means they're headed to hell. Why? He gives the explanation. They work iniquity. Now, the answer that I'm going to give might surprise a few people. The word work literally means occupation, labor. It means to engage in something. It means to do business. It means to exercise or to perform. Iniquity here means illegal deeds. It means to violate God's law. It means to work wickedness. It means to commit transgressions, iniquity, or to do lawlessness. Not a very good list of things, is it? So this isn't speaking of someone who just every great once in a while stumbled into wrongdoing. This was a way of life. This had become a pattern by which they lived by. They didn't just mistakenly do a couple of things wrong here or there. 
These are people who labored to do that which was evil. This is a group of people who engaged in wickedness. They did business in transgression. They exercised lawlessness. They performed illegal deeds. That means that they'd done things that was against God's law. They'd done this as a job. This wasn't just a thing they stumbled into. They performed and exercised this as a way of life. They did it, Jesus said, like they were occupied in an occupation. Think about that for just a moment. Everybody that works a job normally works at least five days a week. Some work every day. These people, as if they were punching a clock, they were busy with sin. These same people that were so busy with sin come to Jesus and called him Lord. These people who were so engaged in sin come to Jesus and said, we've cast out devils in your name. These people who were so entrenched in wrongdoing came to Jesus and said, we've prophesied in your name. These people who labored to do the things that God is displeased with told him, we've done mighty miracles in your name. We, we worked some wonderful works. And Jesus looked at them and he didn't see their good works. He didn't see the miracles. He didn't say the devils were definitely cast out. He didn't say they didn't cast them out. He didn't say that they did or didn't prophesy. He didn't even tell them, say, hold on a minute. Why do you call me Lord like you did with the rich young ruler? But he looks at them and he says, I don't know you. I never knew you. Depart from me. Why? Because you work iniquity. It doesn't matter how many devils you cast out if you commit sin. It doesn't matter how many people prophesy in Jesus' name if you commit sin. It doesn't matter if you call him Lord if you actively commit sin. It doesn't matter how many mighty miracles you have wrought in your life if you commit sin. He doesn't know you. I know that may be harsh, may be hard to swallow for some people, but this is exactly what Jesus said. They were purposely acting contrary to God's law. This isn't a person that tried their best and they still fell into a little something and uh, they messed up and Jesus is just being overboard. No, Jesus said, you have worked iniquity. You have punched the clock and went to work sinning every day. You have labored to do wrong. You haven't even tried to get away from it. You have worked to do this. And could I tell you, if that's where you are today, I believe I'd make him my Lord instead of just calling him Lord. I believe I would find that place of prayer and I would come before him humbly and say, Lord, I'm tired of working iniquity. I'm ready to work for you. Oh, my friend, wouldn't that be a terrible thing to hear the Lord say, depart from me. Good teaching, a good answer. I certainly enjoyed it. But remember, friends, if you have a Bible question that you'd like an answer to, drop us an email at dkministries1977 at yahoo.com. dkministries1977 at yahoo.com. We hope you've enjoyed our podcast today, sharing God's Word. But until next time, may God bless you all. Be sure and come back Friday for episode two in our systematic theology of the church. We'll be looking at the purpose of the church. I'll gladly bear the reproach, Lord, for the gospel's sake. Where I go, you've already been there, cause I'm walking in Jesus' name. Well, I'm walking in Jesus' name, I'm going where he bid me go. I'm dressing and talking like he wants me to, he's a keeper of my soul. I have learned to lean on Jesus and cast on him my ever concern. I'm looking for a home and glory where
sorrow will end.